Hello fellow lucky Martians. Welcome to episode number 8 of the Deep Dive Autobiography, I Am a Particularly Lucky Martian by Jay Crandall, edited by Kim Lambelay and Chris Crandall. If you're like me and you love word games, you'll love Don't End a Word. Based on a deceptively simple two-player word game I played in the car with my parents growing up, it is now available. The fact that I got shot was pretty unlucky, but fortunately, I was near a major hospital with an advanced trauma center. As far as my personal chances for survival, they started with just the most obvious, gunshot to the brain, which carries a 5% survival rate. I contracted numerous infections as well, which caused a brain abscess, which has a survival rate of 90%. Then I caught MRSA pneumonia early in the hospital, which kills half of the ICU patients it infects, followed by C. diff, which has a survival rate of 82%. I then caught ventriculitis, a cerebral inflammation that has a survival rate of 61%, as well as candida, a fungal blood infection which kills 45% of the people who get it. And then I endured hydrocephalus, which has a 95% survival rate and necessitated implantation of a drainage shunt from my head down to my abdomen. To top it off, the bullet crossed the midline, something almost nobody survives. It did this when I was placed on a shaking bed to treat my MRSA pneumonia, Although it did keep my lungs clear, it caused the bullet to jostle its way to the other side, where it was able to be removed. That meant that the bullet crossed my midline. Taking all that together, I was left with a 0.57% chance of survival. When I made a post about this on Facebook, Steve made the comment of, Nice dice rolls, which inspired me to figure out what the equivalent chance dice roll would be. Turns out, I would have to roll on a 20 on a d20, a 20-sided dice, followed by a 10 on a d10. The first prognosis was grim. The doctors told my parents that they expected me to either die or become vegetative. It then got even worse, when my parents were told that I could end up facing locked-in syndrome, where I would retain some consciousness, but be unable to move or communicate. A few days in, I was asked by a nurse to show two fingers, and I was able to do so with my non-paralytic left hand. This demonstrated the ability to hear, understand what I heard, and move my muscles to act on it. The nurse told my parents that this was a very good sign for my recovery. It still wasn't clear whether my injury had damaged my optic nerves to such a degree as to blind me, so my grandfather made me a set of finger labyrinths for me to trace. I then contracted MRSA pneumonia and was placed on a shaking bed to keep my lungs clear. This may have been helpful for my lungs, but it caused the bullet to migrate to the edge of my skull on the other side. It damaged the memory centers there as well before being removed. The initial injury had taken out the other side's memory center, and this led to my disabling condition, something I'd like to call acquired CRS disorder. If you're unfamiliar with this disorder, the CRS stands for can't remember shit. And as one of the editors of this, My mother can attest, I have a pretty bad case of it. It is almost unheard of for someone to suffer damage to both of these regions of the brain and survive. One of the most striking examples of this early on was my poor parents having to inform me multiple times of the passing of Sophie, as I had to go through the painful experience of learning that fact each time. I have very few memories of my time there. I remember the tables in the mess hall area, which descended from the ceiling. I remember being pushed in a wheelchair around a garden by the hospital. 
And I also remember that each occupied room got a special identifying flag on it, facing out. I wore sweatpants like all the time. You could see that I was getting better. That's about it for early hospitalization memories. Many thanks to my uncle Ken for keeping the family updated with regular emails during this time, which my parents were unable to do much until things began to quiet down at my release. I've been told, while being examined by a doctor, he handed me a piece of paper and asked me to write something, and was able to write a sentence. That sentence was, this sucks. Unfortunately, my parents didn't keep that note, but I can understand why they didn't. Even though I was able to write that, I was unable to read what I had just written, or anything else for that matter. I had to relearn to read and to eat food by mouth, and was in the hospital with a stomach tube for a hundred days exactly. My parents had no access to a computer, but relayed my progress to my uncle, Ken, who sent out numerous email updates to my relatives on my recovery. My parents helped me with the laboriously slow process of eating by mouth, which numerous small bites and sips of water in between to prevent choking. They brought in milkshakes and other easily swallowed high-protein and high-calorie foods, and sat with me while I slowly ate meals by mouth. This took up several hours each day, but it worked. Most of it stayed down, despite my body rejecting the fast, large amounts of the tube feedings. The doctors were impressed with my progress and eventually approved the removal of my feeding tube, a date which was christened Tube-Out Tuesday. Fernando was a frequent visitor of mine while I was in the hospital. His name isn't actually Fernando, but for some reason, I thought it was. I do not know any Fernandos. Prior to that July 4th evening, my dad hadn't used a day of sick leave in almost 30 years of government work, and had built up about two years of it. The government let him use 14 months of that as family leave to take care of me, and I was incredibly lucky as it comes to insurance coverage, as I still had my dad's federal Blue Cross Blue Shield policy, but just barely. It was scheduled to lapse 24 days later on my 22nd birthday. I did have a basic individual policy starting on my birthday, which we discovered after the fact that would have failed to cover rehab. My dad's work advised him that my coverage could be continued as I was injured before my birthday, and they jumped through hoops to extend the policy to cover more therapy appointments. The co total cost of my injury and rehabilitation approached $2 million. I was so fortunate that after suffering such a terrible and costly injury, I have gotten so much help in my recovery without forcing my family to sell their house or driving them into bankruptcy. You've been listening to episode number eight of Jay Crandall's Deep Dive Autobiography, I Am a Particularly Lucky Martian. A while ago, I decided to turn a collection of t-shirt design ideas, which innocently and covertly depict vulgar phrases, into t-shirts. My favorite item at the moment would have to be the one where it's a peanut brand with Mr. Peanut standing next to the name of it, which is D's. So you can connect the dots. If you'd like to get one and snicker about it in the lunchroom, visit tinyurl.com slash secretly vulgar. And check out tinyurl.com slash hidden animal sentences. To see a list of hidden animal sentences, I made with my mom in elementary school illustrated with the animal from that sentence hidden in the picture. My mother was able to quit her job and devote herself full-time to my recovery. She would teach me to read a second time and handle my mental rehab, and my father happily engaged me in all sorts of physical rehab. I was discharged on October 12th, 2006 in fair condition. <laughs> in my discharge summary, 
They note brittle diabetes insipidus, salt diabetes, right side hemiparesis, paralytic on the right side, right homologous hemianopia, visual field loss, diplopia, double vision, dysautonomia, problems with my sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, and nausea. Cognitively, I was suffering from severe anterograde amnesia, non-fluent aphasia, very limited speech, visual anomia, impairment in visual recognition, and alexia, inability to read. And I had very little insight into my condition. I was wheelchair-bound, but it took a while for me to realize I couldn't walk. My parents converted their dining room to my bedroom, as my old bedroom was upstairs. I am so lucky that both parents were willing and able to stop work when I was injured and made my recovery their full job. I am so thankful to them for running through parenting with me all over again, at the point that they should be looking forward to retirement and relaxation. My sincerest thanks to them, particularly my deeply compassionate and resourceful mother for the help they provided, and for being willing and able to delve into their records for me as I wrote this. Lucky for me, my mother was a talented psychotherapist who dove into research on my various conditions. She bought numerous texts, and almost all got heavily annotated. She read countless more from the library and filled notebooks with the useful bits gleaned from them. My mother taught me how to read again, this second time starting with children's books and poetry. She did this because there had been an event at the hospital when a group got together to sing. I was handed the lyrics, even though I had not been able to read. With the addition of the music and singing, it accessed the lesser injured left side of my brain, and I was able to read the lyrics, which I had never seen or heard before, and sing along. This led to my mother to start teaching me using rhythmic rhyming material. The poem that she used was Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, which I had partly memorized in high school, and other simple books such as A Tree is Nice. We then read books like I'll Carry the Fork together, taking turns reading a page aloud. My mother engaged me with all sorts of cognitive rehab activities, like reading together, playing boggle, crosswords, and spelling bees. We also enjoyed activities like creating the list of animal metaphors slash similes. And my mother bought me a book on poetry and was inspired to update a poem I had written in high school, The Axis Tilts, which I then updated. The poem's title is a reference to the seasonality on our planet being a result of our off-killer rotation. I also composed numerous haikus, being able to read has enabled me to survive my terrible memory through the use of notebooks by my bedside. Full of ideas scrawl down as they hit me when I'm laying in bed. Notepads in the shower, notes on my keyboard, and where I eat. I would often forget to bring up the notebook I was using and would start a new one, and develop quite a pile of them. I would start keeping a journal to document the mundane and exciting happenings in my life, which I would try to review every morning, in addition to looking at the calendar, looking forward and reviewing recent events. We started with a little paper booklet, but my folks and I were very interested in moving to a digital format. There was specialty journaling hardware available recommended by BIAV, but it was expensive and clunky. Luckily, my parents discovered the much more useful and appealing PDA. I began taking note of the day-to-day -day happenings, and it also enabled me to start taking pictures, and I eventually would come to almost fill a shelf with albums of printed-out digital pictures. I would continue using digital note-taking software, and that PDA is now a smartphone, and it is almost an extension of my body. I am finding out all sorts of things every day from Google. I view my smartphone as my external memory, and I am so glad they came out when I needed them most. 
and thanks to my mother's research and a push for non-generic off-label prescription, I started taking the Alzheimer's medication, rivastigmine, which was a complete revelation. I went from being pretty much amnesic to just having a really crappy memory. That's a pretty significant difference. It was off-label as a treatment for brain injury, and my parents had to fight with my doctor to prescribe it, and it wasn't covered by our insurance. I am so thankful they were willing and able to pay for it, as I began having my first new memories. They did end up covering it, but not until the generic form became available. I don't know whether to feel good or bad whenever I am able to remember something that my parents can't, which has happened, most recently when we were trying to remember the term brine. I wear ankle and wrist orthotics to bed, which has a raised head, because I get incredibly dizzy and nauseous if I lay flat, and keeps me from getting a calf contracture. Every night I run through a routine of stretches with my father's help. I've lived in the same bedroom since 2003, my first year of college, and I've filled my bedroom with pieces of memorabilia. We have installed railings on both sides of the stairs leading up. Lining the hallway walls are a bunch of art pieces from my childhood and my teenage years. Upon entering, to your immediate left are a bunch of things that represent my childhood up to my high school days. To your right is a similar board from my time since middle school. There's the dresser and my main bookcase. There is a display rack on the back wall. Lastly, there is also an area by the side of the fridge full of noteworthy things, like a picture of Balter, Jared's dog, drawn by his daughter, and an eagle that perched on our pier. My dad hadn't used a day of sick leave in almost 30 years of government work and had built up about two years of it, which his job let him use 14 months of as family leave to take care of me. He would happily later engage me in all sorts of physical rehab bochi. Once we had a ball that landed on top of a diamond of four other balls, which is pretty crazy considering we were throwing from about 10 feet away. Card games like set, stretches, various backyard games, and busting out the old tandem bike. Inspired by the bike, my father purchased a tandem pedal kayak and a folding tandem bike that could fit in the car. While my hemiparesis prevented me from operating a bike independently, I was an excellent non-steering biker in back. My mother had me walk in the hallways, back and forth, and running through a program of looking up and down, left and right, walking backwards. I lived less than a mile from Sean Schwarting at Riverside Physical Therapy who would help free me from my various walking assistance devices and have me therapeutically skipping down the hall there. I would eventually graduate to skipping therapeutically down the hall in PT, and once I was able, my father and I started going on almost daily walks. It's a good exercise for both of us, and has let us get to know our neighbors better as well. When we first started this, I had recently just graduated from using my cane, so my father would carry it with him in case I needed it. There was a pothole right in the middle of the road along our route, and he would tap on it as he walked by it in front of me. Even though I don't think I was in much danger of tripping and falling, this memory has stuck in my head. I was considering subtitling this, He'll Carry the Cane. Our house is at the end of a small cul-de-sac, and our standard route takes us across the road ours intersects to a lesser used side road, and it seemed that quite often that even when walking at night with no traffic, as we approached the intersection, we would have to wait for a car to pass when we reached it. This would happen with such frequency that I would joke that it's a sign that we're in a Truman show, with the director yelling, cue the cars, as we approached the intersection. My dad and I ran into one of our neighbors down the street on one of our walks. We invited him along and introduced ourselves. He agreed, said his name was Jared, and went back into his house to grab his two large dogs and the single big leash he walked him with. 
we discovered that we had a lot in common and would become the best of friends. Jared was a smart and funny, long-haired and beardy music lover who taught middle school. Soon after meeting, he got married and had a daughter. He has an undying affection for the Dallas Cowboys and felt it right to name her after his favorite player. Jared would become my only local friend, and we would become very close. We hung out often and went on lots of walks, and he didn't mind sitting down to watch MSNBC with my parents and I. He introduced my dad and I, and then his daughter, to Flux, a card game which we have played in its various iterations quite frequently over the years. Jared also reintroduced me to going to see movies, which we did on a fairly regular basis, sitting on the back left of the cinema to accommodate my right side blindness. I feel very lucky to have had a like-minded neighbor just down the street in my generally very conservative, countrified county. A few years after meeting him, he got married and had a daughter, who I got to watch learn how to read and grow to love reading. She has finished the entire Harry Potter series, and I have a distinct memory of introducing her to books. She would eventually join our walks, and we would gather pebbles from the dirt road to throw in the creek at the end. You've been listening to episode number eight of Jake Crandall's Deep Dive Autobiography. I'm a particularly lucky Martian. To see the Google Docs version of this with the extra bits that didn't quite work in the podcast form, visit bit.ly.com slash luckymartian8. And check out Don't End a Word in the Android App Store, if you're like me and you love word games. Thanks to Shining Seconds for composing the theme music. You can access their webpage at shiningseconds.bandcamp.com. See you next episode, and stay lucky.